Hi there, and welcome back to the Equipoise podcast. We're going to jump right into it because we've got a big one today. Last time we covered the history of abstinence among Christians with regards to alcohol consumption, and we discovered that it is a relatively novel position to hold going back to the early 19th century or mid-18th century at the earliest. Before then, the idea of alcohol consumption being a sin simply does not exist. We also discovered that this position is a pragmatic evolution of a genuine conviction about the sinfulness of drunkenness and excess. By that, I mean, where drunkenness was once rightfully denounced as sinful, this gradually gave way to alcohol itself being considered sinful because of how easily and how often it was abused. But if alcohol itself hasn't always been seen as sinful, shouldn't this mean we should be able to see a rich heritage of Christians and alcohol coexisting in a healthy way from the beginning? I submit that we do see just that in Scripture, and even thousands of years before Christ ever came on the scene. However, we've got to first define our terms. Quickly, what is wine in the Bible anyways? Is it always alcoholic? Well, Many would argue, as uh, Stephen Reynolds in his book, The Biblical Approach to Alcohol, that the most common words for wine in the Bible, yayin in Hebrew and oinos in Greek, cannot always be assumed to be alcoholic. However, this is an unfounded and ultimately groundless argument. In other words, there is absolutely no linguistic precedent for these words being used as anything but what they very literally mean, intoxicating beverage. Scholar Kenneth Gentry notes in his book, God Gave Wine, that the Hebrew word yayin, all 144 times that it's used in the Hebrew Bible, means exactly what it says, fermented beverage. The same is true of the 33 times that the Greek word oinos is used in a way equivalent to the Hebrew word yayin, such as at the wedding feast of Cana, or when Paul tells Christians not to get drunk. I can understand why the abstinence-only position would wish that the scripture doesn't speak of alcohol in a positive light and thereby form these delineated categories to fulfill this wish, but such an approach is intellectually, historically, and in every other way dishonest. Now, one more objection. Some would say, all right, I admit it. It was real wine. Wine makes the merry heart. I'll admit it. You can't get away from it. But they watered down their wine back then. Well, yeah, I think I could build a case that while they did do that in Jesus's day, they were still intoxicating beverages. I've got a list here of ratios of what the Romans and Greeks would do, but I'm trying to get ahead of the the game here and fast forward a little bit. My, My main point is that No matter how much they diluted it, there was still enough alcohol to get drunk if one tarried long at the wine, to borrow a term from the Bible. In the end, though, that's not really the point here. The point is whether or not it's a sin to drink alcohol at all, regardless if it's a 3% ABV hard seltzer or an 80-proof scotch. So on to the discussion. What has been the nature of the relationship between followers of Yahweh slash Christians and alcohol? Well, in Jewish culture, wine has always been seen as a blessing from God. In fact, it's considered to be a holy beverage, replete with its own special blessing and everything. It's always been considered a beverage associated with joy and the favor of God. The Old Testament is loaded with verses like Ecclesiastes 9.7 and 10.19 telling us to enjoy our wine with the merry heart and that wine makes life merry. Wine is also associated with God's covenant with his people, Israel. A number of times in Deuteronomy, we're told that God blesses his people with grain, wine, oils, and so forth as the result of his goodness and covenant faithfulness to them. The Passover was also celebrated with wine as well. The prophets also speak of a land with wine as something good to be anticipated, as well as something associated with God's mercy and generosity. An absence of wine, according to these same scriptures, is a sign of the opposite, disobedience, judgment, and cursing. Depending on your position on this issue, you might not like what you're presently hearing, but it's what the scriptures say. 
And I implore you not to say, well, that just means it's non-alcoholic wine. We covered that. That's absolutely not the case. Lastly, on the Old Testament side of things, consider that the promised land was a land flowing with milk and honey. I personally find it intriguing that milk and honey, in addition to being symbols of abundance, fertility, wealth, and even sexual pleasure, were used to make delicious mead, a fermented, intoxicating beverage that was enjoyed and gave a merry heart. This was a sign of victory and blessing from God. Okay, so the Jews in the Old Testament clearly drank wine and enjoyed it, but what about Christians? Was Jesus okay with all of this? Well, I certainly hope so, since his first public miracle was turning about 120 to 180 gallons of water into wine at a wedding party. Also, the Lord's Supper, or Eucharist if you prefer, incorporated wine, and Christ told us to drink up. In fact, the very meal, the Passover meal that Christ transformed into the Lord's Supper, or Eucharist if you will, um, had no less than four different occasions in which someone would drink wine. So, anyways... I could easily make a case for Christ drinking alcohol and enjoying it with a merry heart based off the scripture, but one scripture alone, even if I didn't have the rest, is quite compelling. It's from Luke 7, where Jesus is addressing a crowd of people. He's describing the slander of his opponents. In his speech, he addressed the foolish expectations of the religious elite. John came neither eating or drinking, and they thought he was a wacko. Then Jesus came eating and drinking, and they accused him of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. They just couldn't be satisfied. But did you see that? They called him a glutton, which is a term for those who indulge in the eating of food excessively and sinfully, and they called him a wine-bibber, which is a term for those who indulge in wine in the same way. So it's clear just judging from the opponent's hyperbolic slander that Jesus did enjoy food as well as fermented beverages, since those were the subjects of his enemies' gross exaggerations. Okay, so we can clearly see that Jesus drank wine and enjoyed it, but what about Christians today? Well, let's do a little bit of what we did last week and trace the history, except this time we'll trace it from back then until now. In the 2nd century, uh, just a hundred years or so after Christ ascended, Clement published a work uh, which contains what still stands as the first academic approach to the relationship of Christians and alcohol. In it, he wrote that drinking alcoholic beverages shamelessly was wrong. Instead, we must drink alcohol as our Savior did, with decorum, propriety, and deliberation. He also wrote that Jesus did not teach while under the influence of wine as well. Clearly, for the early Christians, the problem wasn't alcohol, it was drunkenness. Beer and wine were regularly consumed responsibly among Christians everywhere in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Fast forward a little bit to the Holy Roman Empire and the medieval period. I'm skipping so much in my notes because we got to get done on time. There's a, a number of uh, kings and popes and monasteries and things like that uh, that spearheaded many improvements to uh, the, the consumption of alcohol. In fact, beer was often beloved by Christians since it was safer than water to drink and contained less alcohol by volume than other beverages. In fact, it's even said that uh, some babies were baptized in beer rather than water, uh, holy water, right, due to the widespread availability and safety of beer. Here's what's really interesting. Monks of the early and middle Christian church paved the way in winemaking. They were so dedicated to Christ and the Eucharist that they wanted the wine they made to be perfect. So they innovated their way into finding and refining the best possible wines. I could go on and on about how they improved on wine in the Burgundy region of France, cultivated the Riesling grape along the Rhine River, and how it was a nun who discovered hops and beer. Instead, I'll, I'll just... Try to sum up by saying John Chrysostom, John of Egypt, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, Clement of Rome, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and so many more of our Christian predecessors drank wine and beer and preached not prohibition, but moderation. 
To quote Luther, known for his high praise of German beer, it should be enjoyed in a way that is, quote, moderate, not indecent, end quote. Why, even the Guinness Brewery was founded by a Christian, Arthur Guinness, who used the profits for Christian hospitals, charities, and even Sunday school programs. The fact is that Christians have a long, rich history of responsibly enjoying alcoholic beverages from the start of Christianity until the present day. In fact, even here in America, hard cider was a staple at early American churches in the Northeast. We have a lot of apples up here. And on the other side of the country... Spanish Catholics were planting vineyards up and down the coast in California uh, at various missions known today as the best wine country in the world. The message during these times? Well, to quote a man named Increase Mather in 1673, here's the quote, Drink is in itself a good creature of God and to be received with thankfulness, but the abuse of drink is from Satan. The wine is from God, but the drunkard is from the devil. It wasn't too long after this time that the Prohibition Group started up, concerned about the excessive use of alcohol, and that leads us to where we started last week. In the end, I suppose I'm compelled to wonder how a rich, beautiful, interwoven symbiosis of Christians and alcohol gave way to a blunt, one-dimensional prohibition on alcohol completely. Well, to be fair, I don't wonder too much. I know how easily we tend toward extremes. It's just really interesting how the same Christians who invented so many wine and beer-making techniques aren't the same Christians who centuries later would lead the charge to making it illegal. I suppose extremes are attractive to us. In the next episode, I'll be presenting a case for abstinence from alcohol. And the episode after that will be followed by a case for moderate drinking of alcohol. Then we'll wrap it up by covering some scriptures that have to do with alcoholic beverages and see if we can't bring a little clarity and balance to the discussion altogether. So until next time, stay balanced.